Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. What's up, guys? John Davids here. And today I've got a conversation with one of the most successful fashion entrepreneurs there is, Joe Mimran, founder of Club Monaco, Joe Fresh, Alfred Sung. The list goes on and on. In fact, there are so many brands that Joe Mimran has been involved with. We really only talk about one or two because there's just too many success stories to share. We get into detail today about Club Monaco. I wanted to know how it started how Joe actually got it off the ground, how he funded it, how he designed it, how he got through the bad times, of course, the good times, how he grew it, how he eventually exited, and what that whole process was like. So you guys are really going to get a playbook today for how a global fashion business is built. Let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter at RealJohnDavids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. Of course, on LinkedIn, I'm John Davids as well. Here is Joe Mimran. So a lot of people are going to know who you are and and already have some sense of it. But why don't you just give us a a quick minute on who Joe Mimran is, and then we'll get into your story. Yeah. My whole career has been about being merging business and creative. Like I've always loved it from when I was a kid. I tell the story of, you know, being in fact, loving fashion at the age of 12 years old, 13 years old, when I'd go to the junior high in a yellow mohair sweater and brown corduroy pants, loved music. I actually had my mother would make me, you know, there was a trend when I was 13. That's the weirdest thing, right? The trend was like these overshirts, right? Like lumberjack shirts, right? That was a big trend and kids would buy them at like a Woolco or whatever back then. But no, me, I had to get my mother to make it in a beautiful French wool and slightly smaller check, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And luckily, I was a tough kid, or else I would have gotten picked on quite a bit. But uh, yeah, I loved fashion, loved the arts. And uh, even when I went to university, I would take sociology, psychology, and then I took Japanese cinema and fine art, right? And then realized I better get another degree and went out and got my my Bachelor of Commerce very quickly and got I got a CA. Uh, I became a CPA CA. And the minute I got my my CPA, I ended up leaving and going into entrepreneurial world. And I found that fashion was amazing because it blended, you know, both business and, and art at the same time. I had an art gallery when I was uh, 18 years old. I opened a gallery on Scholard called Starving Artist, and I represented a bunch of up-and-coming artists back then. But I had to have three jobs to maintain the gallery, right? So again, it was like passion, but I had to work my tail off in order to be able to afford to do that. I think I actually, I'm sure it wasn't around then, but my first condo was on Scholard. So I, I, yeah. know, I knew those art galleries very well. Yeah, um, yeah. So one thing I want to get into here, because this is actually... You're a bit of a savant in the sense that... And I've, I've had financial conversations with you where I think to myself, wow, you're, you're more, your financial acumen is greater than most people would think of a fashion creative guy. 
And I didn't know until now that you actually have a CPA. So this kind of mix of skills, I mean, you're a branding person, obviously a fashion design person, and you also have this great financial mind. I'd imagine that's been a pretty big competitive advantage for you. Did that skill of the finance come in handy throughout your career? Oh my God. I think that's the biggest gap most creative people have in the fashion world is they think they can go out and run a business or they want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't realize that they're missing this other side of their brain. And my advice would always be to young designers who who wanted to try and take it on was like, find a partner. If you can't do that stuff yourself, go out, get a partner, give 50% of yourself away in order to get that left, you know, left, right side balanced. Because the apparel business, the fashion business, probably one of the most difficult businesses, right? It's like when you say you're going into the restaurant business, are you crazy? The apparel business is worse. I'd say that everybody with a sewing machine could compete. Now that resonated more 40 years ago when people had sewing machines. But today, you know, it's like everybody with a phone now can compete from a marketing standpoint, right? Everybody is their own celebrity. And I think it's very much akin to that. This, that world and that the apparel world is as competitive as this new marketing world is. And so it has kept me in such good stead. I never would have been able to grow my business in the early 80s if I hadn't had that degree because I'd go out and I'd look for money and you know, I would spend 60% of my time, 60 to 70% of my time just on financing the business. Because imagine Canada, 1980, 81, I'm borrowing money in 82 at 18% plus, that was prime, plus 10%. So I was borrowing money at 28% from a factoring company that they would never give me the money if I wasn't able to give them the cash flows you know, work on projections, you know, really convince them that we had the discipline to run a business as well as drive it creatively. So this was the... So in the late 70s, you had a garment factory. And then in the 80s, that's when you started Club Monaco, which I'd imagine was your first big win. Um, No, Alfred Sun was our first big win. So 1970, 1977, I left my career... (laughs) at the accounting firm of Coopers and Librand. And my brother and my mother had started a factory and they were in business for seven months when I joined them. And it was a little factory with six sewing machines and it was on Richmond Street and there was no air conditioning in the summer and there was very little heat in the winter. And that's where it all started. And I realized right away that, and we were in the dress business and I learned the dress business immediately, very quickly, and also learned that the retailers had all the power. The brands and the retailers had all the power. So what are we going to do? So we had to create a brand. So the first thing we did was we went down to New York to get a brand, like all other Canadians. Canadians, it was a branch office. There were no brands being created in Canada. You cannot mention a brand that was created in Canada in the late 70s that's still around today. I defy you in the fashion world, right? And so we went down and we we're going to do what every other Canadian manufacturer did, which is, you know, license a brand. So we did dresses. We went down, we met with Oscar de la Renta and the president, 
and we convinced them that we were young and aggressive and we had this wonderful factory and everything. And they said, okay, sure, let's put something together. And on the way home, you know, we're talking and scheming and, and we thought, well, why are we going to pay a royalty? Why don't we create our own brand? And this is where naivety is a big advantage, right? And when I would see naivety in, you know, particularly when I was doing Dragon's Den and somebody would come up with this kind of, and they'd be so naive. And the last thing you want to do is quelch that because out of that naivety, you do things that it breaks through. And so you can never be cynical of that because we said, no, 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 we're going to build our own brand. I hired a designer, a woman, and we're going to move from dresses to sportswear because that's where it's happening. And the designer, after three months, she quit and said that she got a better offer. I said, you sure we're going to make you famous? And she goes, no, 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 I had already put all the fabric and everything. So then I phone up Alfred's son. I say, come on down. We're going to make you famous. And, you know, he came down. And we made him the face of the brand. And within three years, he hit the cover of McLean's magazine in Canada as the king of fashion. And we grew our factory from six sewing machines to over 150, 200 people, King and Bathurst. We had a 35,000 square foot state-of-the-art manufacturing facility by that point in time. And we had just licensed the brand for fragrance to Riviera Concepts that grew it to over 60 countries and became one of the top 10 selling fragrances in the world. And that was from 1979 to 1983. So that, that was a huge run. And so we had a big org. And at the time in 83, fashion was shifting. 84, I had just been to Japan and I fell in love with this sort of Japanese aesthetic And I noticed that there was a big opening in the market and it was for high quality product at at great pricing. And we actually, again, this is where you learn to pivot in business. We developed a line, was called Club Monaco. We did all the research in terms of names and our company name was Monaco Group. And, you know, we found that that was one that polled very well with consumers. And so it was Club Monaco. We came out with this line. We were going to sell it wholesale because that was how we were selling at those days. And it was a unit, it was kind of unisex, is how we kind of build it at the time, which everybody thinks unisex is new right now. It was done way back then. And we went to the department stores where we had clout like the Bay, Eaton's, Simpsons in the US. And they all said, we don't get it. And we just don't understand this at all. But we had bought all these goods. All the goods were coming in anyway. So we had to open stores in order to unload all the product. That's how Club Oh my Monaco goodness. Started. Is that why you had stores? That's why we had stores. We were oh not re- we were not retailers. We became retailers. And okay, pause for one second, Joe. This is a great story. But I just want to understand one thing, because you kind of glossed over the fact that in four years you went from like you and your family to 200 people. Can you just unpack that a little bit? How did yeah, you sure. get your product? I mean, how did Alfred Sung get into all the stores, become a fashion phenomenon? How did you scale? How did you pay for it? Unpack that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's a great part of the history because you know when we first started, we took a 6,000 square foot space. We moved from Richmond, which was like 
2,000 feet. We took 6,000 feet at the corner of King and Bathurst. And my dad said to me at the time, he goes, oh, my God, how are you going to fill this place up? Like, and he would, uh, when we had a customer in our showroom, he would, he would have to go downstairs and make phone calls into the office so we would sound busy. And my brother was on the sales side. I was on the production design side and accounting side and financing side. And we built a wholesale line. We had a dress line at the same time. We had Deborah Kuchme that we brought into the fold. But it was Alfred Sung that was really the mainstay of, of the business. And it was really hard because, you know, you had to fund the inventory, you had to fund the receivables. And this is where, again, the financing, why I spent so much time financing, because, you know, I had to fund all the equipment purchasing, bring the factory up to standard. And, you know, we started with 6,000 square feet and it had no air conditioning. We finally put air conditioning in. When I put air conditioning in, I got a call. I got a call from one of the guys that was on the they were on the dress guild. I was part of the dress and sportswear guild. And I got a call from one of the guys on there who had a factory on Spadine. And he said, Joe, you're killing me. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you put air conditioning in your factory. You're killing me, right? Because he was running all of his factories without it. So it was pretty interesting. And yeah, I even brought in, you know, we had one of the politicians come through our offices as well, sort of a, an example of things that we were doing and expanding within Toronto. And we really believed in Canadian production at the time. I had to hire a great engineer uh, that really helped to streamline and we were trying to do it ourselves. We were, I brought one of the first fax machines in because we had an office in New York and you know, orders were getting delayed because they were getting mailed. You know, in those days, you'd mail stuff. So fax machine was like an easier way of getting things in. And, and so just just the, the one last piece there, you said Alfred Sung obviously was a hit and it worked. Did you do anything sort of creatively on the marketing side? Or oh, were you doing anything? Sure. Or it was just oh. a good product? No, 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 no. It was a combination of amazing product of the moment women were entering the workforce. We were making clothing that was right for the moment in terms of women's suits and women's tailored products. We built a factory that made amazing products. We had technical people that we hired, pattern makers, cutters, the floor ladies that we would have on the floor. We had the engineer that came in and made sure that we were efficient. And then we did marketing that was very, very aggressive. I mean, we spent a tremendous amount of money marketing in the States. We used international models. We advertised in Vogue magazine. We used every single bit of marketing that was available at that time. And it was mostly magazine marketing. And then we opened an office in New York, right in the garment district, but a beautiful office that was uh, at the corner of uh, 37th and 7th. And it had hired the best salespeople. These were, were all our, our employees. Had a, another office that we put in, a technical office and sample office in New York at the time. So, 
we were investing heavily yeah. and we were investing at, ahead of our revenues always. And, you know, even though we were doubling our revenue year on year on year, we just kept plowing it back in. And always reinvesting in the business. Always, always. Yeah. And always taking huge risks, like huge risks and, and so fast. That- yeah. So let's go to Club Monaco because this is really fascinating. So you create all this clothing. Nobody wants to put it in their stores. So you figure, okay, we're going to open our stores. Yeah. Uh, and was it one store that you opened or did you decide to open a chain right away? Well, we had to open a minimum of three stores right away in order to absorb some of this inventory. Like There was no way even three stores could do it. And we opened like high-profile stores. We opened Queen Street. We opened uh, Hazelton Lanes at the time, which was an amazing center. And we opened West Edmonton Mall. And, oh, wow. And, Are uh, any of those locations, it, is it the same Queen location same, as today? Or? Same, same. Oh, same one, okay. Same. Yeah, same right. one. I've same been, one. I've, at I've the been a time, customer. Yeah, at the time, that was a very big store. Most boutiques were 2,000 square feet. All boutiques were multi-branded boutiques at the time and it was way off pitch because first of all it was the rent i could afford i wanted a big enough store to put this merchandise in and it was a completely unique model we didn't use mannequins normal mannequins we didn't use imagery that you would see normal imagery at that time was you know girls kicking up their heels and like very modely we focused on the product. We focused on the environment. We focused on the way our staff looked. It was cultish. We cut everybody's hair. We did an intense amount of radio marketing at the time. We had a beautiful, our sign at that time, we did a painting over the store, which was a replication of the casino in Monaco. And then we had our crested. And so it was like we did this as a as a stealth campaign where nobody knew what was opening. We said a gift to Queen Street from Club Monaco. And we just started a teaser campaign and we spent a half a million bucks just on the teaser campaign to open that one store on the marketing, let alone the build outs and everything else. But to, you know, what was amazing and so gratifying was when we opened up, we had lineups. And we had lineups every single weekend for over a year. And we were selling our sweatshirts and our pants and we just couldn't get enough of it. And the same thing happened when we opened up uh, Hazleton and West Edmonton Mall. And it just became um, a runaway train. And then we opened a store a month for 48 months. That That was the pace. That was the pace we were on. So I remember in high school, that white Club Monaco t-shirt with the crest on the chest, that was yeah. like, that was a status symbol. And I'll tell you a funny, a really quick funny story. When I was, I don't know, 16, 17, and I was applying for jobs at the movie theater and the restaurant and you know, just trying to make some money, I applied for a job at Club Monaco. And what I remember, I didn't get it. But what I remember was it was like a two-day interview, come back, sit in a circle, talk about fashion trends. It was the most intense interview. And if you didn't know fashion and if you weren't going to be able to contribute, you were not making it in that store. And it was, yeah. you could just see, wow, this is like, these are these guys are serious about this brand versus, you know, you go down the, the hall to the to Old Navy. Oh yeah, you want a job? Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, no, that's right. It was very cultish in, you know, we had 
12 people that were kind of our founding members of the business, you know, of all different disciplines from visual presentation to buying to design to whatever. And I remember when addressing them right at the very beginning when we would have when we would have our our meetings and just saying that this journey is just the beginning. We are we are going to become an international brand. We are not a local brand. This is an international yeah. brand. And it may have sounded stupid at the time. And again, this is where dream big can get you into a lot of trouble, or it can really be a way of channeling everybody's energy into something bigger, something yeah. greater, right? And making them enthusiastic about the brand. I mean, yeah, these were disciples. And the store was like, I would always refer to a Broadway play. Everybody had a role to play. The curtain goes up. We better be ready. And that's how we approached it. Our first store was designed by Yabu Pushelberg. Yabu Pushelberg has gone on to become one of Canada's great top designers. They now design hotels all over the world. W Hotels, Four Season Hotels. They did the Four Season here in Toronto, but you can't touch them anymore without putting a million dollars down first. But we just did things differently. We didn't have a model. We didn't show a model in our imagery for five years. There was not a model that showed up for five years. Everything was product focused and it was different. We just looked different than everybody else. So I want to ask questions about this. I want to get to the exit, or I guess there might have been a couple exits in the second. But what I'm really curious about is on the inside. So here you are, an entrepreneur with all this massive success. People are seeing it. On the inside, I'm wondering, were you living hand to mouth or did you have a lot of cash flow and you were secure at this point? Or were you still kind of like, at any point, this was a bit of a house of cards? What was actually happening on the inside? So we launched in 85 and we owed the factor so much money, you can't believe it. So much money, he didn't sleep. It wasn't me not sleeping. Now it became he was not sleeping. And he was so nervous because he had to roll the dice with us because he was already in with us. And I still remember it clearly. It was Boston Factors that came up to Toronto. And uh, Jim Shoniker was the president at the time. And and Jim just believed in what we were doing. But boy, he was taking a huge risk because we were his largest exposure. And yeah, if we didn't raise money in 19, uh, it was 1986, I had to go out and I had to raise seven and a half million bucks. And I had been working on it for six months had a whole bunch of private equity guys that were going to put money in. And then the night before the deal was going to close, the lead investor called me up and he tried to negotiate my salary and he tried to negotiate a bunch of other stuff. And I said, you're not the partner for me. I I can't do this deal. And I pulled the deal. And then I owed all these legal fees. And I went to the lawyer who was running the deal on behalf of these guys. And I said, I can't pay you. So the only way I can pay you is if you help me raise money. And we went to the public market in 80. It was now because it took a year to go through all this. And in 87, we actually went public and raised the money okay. going public. Was that the and Dilex thing? No, the Dilex thing was oh. another thing. I can tell you about that now. Oh my but goodness. You, yeah, this- yeah. So, so we went public. We raised money. We were the first company to be able to show pictures in a prospectus because we said to the commission at the time that 
we know you're not allowed to show pictures, but that's our business. And if we can't show pictures that we're at a disadvantage, anyway, we were the first prospectus to show. And I was, I had to sit in prospectus meetings for three months, putting the prospectus together uh, Didn't with the we lawyers. Did famously get in trouble for that because yeah, they put pictures? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, there was a whole story around that. And at the time, we took both Club Monaco and Alfred Sun public at the same time. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavis.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. And things come out of the woodwork at the last minute. We had a lawsuit that came out of New York, one of the fragrances. You know, there's always somebody that tries to disrupt a going public, you know, process tries to green mail you or whatever. Anyway, we had to resolve that. And yeah, we successfully went public, paid off our debts was able to use the money to continue to grow the business, which we needed desperately. And then in 1990, three years later, we were growing so fast that, again, we needed capital. And our stock was trading, was underwater. We didn't want to dilute ourselves. So we we entered into a, a going private transaction with Dialex. And Dialex at the time was very unique. Dialex was a company that really revered entrepreneurs and was very happy to go into 50-50 deals with entrepreneurs where they would provide the capital, all the capital without diluting you, and you would provide the intellectual capital. And they did that with Harry Rosen. They did it with uh, Susie Shearer. They did it with Byway. They did it with a lot of different, a lot of different companies. And we thought we had found a home there. And so in 19... 19- 90, I, we did the going private transaction. Lionel Robbins was my, my key contact there. He was the uh, founder of Fairweather, a fantastic guy. And we had a good run there. And then the shit hit the fan when the gap came up. And all of a sudden, our chinos weren't as good as the Gap's chinos. And they just seemed like the newer, cooler kid on the block. They opened a flagship store right beside us on uh, Queen Street. Yeah. And uh, we got worried. Just closed. Yeah. And we're still and there. We were, yeah. <laughs> well, we got very worried and our sales started to decline. And we went into focus group mode to find out what was going on. And what we learned in the focus groups, the focus groups were conducted by Luke Sklar at the time. Luke was Sklar is a great, great marketer, great insight individual. He's no longer with us, but his firm, uh, his great firm. And what we found in our research was that actually they saw the gap as cheaper than us, even though we, they weren't. So there was this perception that we were higher priced. And there was this perception that they were nice to date, but we were better to marry. So there was this kind of loyalty thing that was going on. And they saw us as, as more leading. And So we had to switch out the company. All of a sudden, we, for the first time, we decided we're going to show models. We're going to go after fashion. We are going to change the direction of the company. 
And that's what we did. And sales tanked even worse. And we went into free fall. And this was, there was a recession going on at the time in 91, 92. Our business went into free fall and dialects ran into all kinds of trouble in the States and capital was drying up. And my COO at the time, Saul Naiman came to me and said, after steady, same on week on week sales decline after, you know, it was like 24 months. It was like disastrous. And he said, I think we should hang it up. And I said, look, I know this is tough, but you know, we've come this far, like we can't give up now. Right. And it was, it was like strange because that month, like that month, there's like a switch went on and all of a sudden double digit increases every single week. And because we had to wean ourselves off of the sweatshirt Chino business, we started showing, we started doing photo shoots in New York with high fashion models, like the best models in the world. We, we used the best photographers. We went into these campaigns that were highly, highly coveted. And it just changed the trajectory of the business completely. And then, you know, we didn't look back. So you what's know, interesting there growing. is that when times got really tough, you actually invested more. You didn't cut so back. We invested more and we took the risk of a real big pivot, right? Like a super big pivot. And it wasn't easy, right? Because I'd have to go to these, you know, weekly sales meetings with all these other guys, right? Like with Harry there and all these other guys that were there on a weekly basis. And we also opened up Korea. We opened up Japan. We oh opened up, Lord. yeah, we opened, yeah, like we were doing all this stuff, right? Okay. So to cap this story off, so it ends in an acquisition by Ralph Lauren. No, uh, it, it, no. Oh. Then we have to extricate ourselves from dialects. So, okay. and, and I wanted, I tried to buy the business back and Wilford always said, nah, you're not going to steal this business from me and blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay, well, the only way for you to think you're getting a fair price is let's take it public. We took the company public with uh, RBC as the lead and we went public in 1997 and we regained our freedom from the dialect situation. And Business just continued to just be so strong. And we opened a store in New York. And I remember my CFO coming to see me and saying, you know, Joe, this store we're opening in New York is 10,000 square feet. You know, he said, if it doesn't work, you know, we're going to be bankrupt. And I said to him, no, 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 it's going to work. Don't you worry. It's going to work. Anyhow, so we opened up the store in New York. and It's a huge hit. I'd like a huge hit. And it was in the Flatiron District. It was so cool. We did our first anniversary party with Tyler Brule of Wallpaper Magazine at the time. We had like all the best stylists and the best photographers. And it was like really quite magical. And we then opened up, you know, another store in Soho. We opened up you know, store in White Oaks. We opened a store in New Jersey. We had stores in San late, Francisco. Late 90s, late 90s. Yeah, okay. late 90s. But it was really the store in, I would say, the flagship store we had in Flatiron that really garnered the most attention. We had articles written about us all the time. And, and then we had launched CMX in 95, which was a tribute to our 10th anniversary, which was a, a sport line. Active wear line, which was really cool and interesting. We had kids. 
At the same time, we launched Club Monaco Cosmetics, and that was a huge hit. We were selling that to Sephora and also within our own stores. What about Cabin? Was that also at the same time or that was separate? Yeah. So Caban, Caban, I opened up. Yeah. Caban was the home division that I started. And I got a call from Loblaws at the time. And this was in uh, 96, 96. Yeah, 96. They asked me to open up a clothing store in their center at Jarvis because they had extra real estate there. And I said, nah. I said, no, nah, I wouldn't do it in a clothing store there. I said, I'll tell you what, though, I'll do a home store. They said, home? Well, you don't have home. I said, yeah, I know I don't have it, but I think we could do something very special. So I convinced them at the time. That's how I met John Letter back then, who became the CEO of Blah Blah. But convinced them that home would do exceptionally well. So we opened up. It started off as everyday essential and then turned into Caban. And we had three locations that we opened up there. And that was the precursor to Caban. And we kind of tested all of these new concepts in that way. So lots going on, right? We're in Japan, we're in Korea, we're in US, we've got cosmetics. And right before we go, right before I'm doing the deal with Ralph, our cosmetics, we had this artist, makeup artist who we work with, Denise Markey, And she was asked to do the makeup for a very famous person at the time. She was going through this issue with Bill Clinton. I don't know if you remember her. (laughs) I do. uh, And so she ended up being interviewed. Monica Lewinsky ended up being interviewed on the Today Show. And it was one of the most watched interviews in America at the time. And she looked fantastic. You know, her makeup, her lips, everything. And everybody was calling in to try and find out who did the makeup. So they called me up and they said, Joe, they want to release the name, right? We're getting all, I said, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm doing this deal. I don't want to get embroiled with politics, one thing, another. And anyway, the news got out that it was Club Monaco and that it was this lip gloss. I can't even remember the name of the lip gloss at the time. And sure enough, the news got out and our phone system crashed from all the calls that were coming in from the U.S. all at one time to find this lip gloss, right? Which sold out immediately all throughout Sephora and all of our stores. And Sheer um, lipstick? It was, it was, no, it was uh, a lip gloss. Because okay. It was a newly developed product that we had at the time. That was right in the middle of us trying to finish our deal with Ralph, who was doing due diligence at the time. Okay, and, so what, and that why did Ralph you decide story, to sell yeah. to Ralph Lauren? Well, because he called me. He, I got a call. I got a call from Earth Title Bomb who said, oh, you know, somebody, somebody wants to call you from uh, Goldman Sachs. Or, no, not Goldman Sachs. No, he said, somebody wants to call you from Ralph Lauren. I said, well, you know, give them my phone number. I'm in St. Martin at the time. I was in St. Martin. I, a vacation. And I get a call from the vice chairman, Mike Newman. And he calls me up and he says, you know, Joe, nice to talk to you. You know, I love what you're doing with Club Monaco. I think it's fantastic. Oh, I said, no, that's great. That's great. He said, I'd love to get together. I said, well, next time I'm in New York. I said, you know, I'm in St. Martin. And he said, well, when are you in New York? I said, no, I'm, I'm going back to Toronto from here. He said, well, how about if I fly up to Toronto to meet you? That's when the lights went on. Like who comes, you know, who flies up to Toronto to come see? Anyhow, 
he comes up and he said, look, we love what you're doing. We want to buy your business. And just have to remember the history of me pushing everything that we had into the middle all the time, right? Betting, betting, betting. All of a sudden, Ralph, who's never bought a brand outside of his own brand, right? Never bought a brand. And he was the master brander in the apparel space. I mean, the master. There was nobody better than Ralph at dissecting the market and knowing how to how to leverage a brand over multiple distributions. And he just did it better than anybody. And it was the compliment of it was kind of, it was gobsmacking that he wanted to buy the business. And we were public. So we had to, you know, have a special committee and had to hire our investment bankers to get involved. And yeah, we did a, we did a great deal and sold the was business. And we did, or was that, or, or what was the acquisition? Yeah, it was a public better. number. It was 138 million bucks at the time, which back wow. then was a lot of money. But you know, what was amazing really was the fact that we did get slammed a little bit in the press that, you know, that we're Canadian sort of iconic brands selling out to the U S but, you know, mostly it was well-received, had got lots of great articles, attention, one thing or another. But I did find out that I, I do not make a good employee. I make a good entrepreneur, but I do not make a good employee. Uh, so that didn't last very long. So. I'm guessing it was like a two-year buyout and you said, see you later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so there are so many. I mean, obviously, the Joe Fresh story, I'm sure, is a whole other. That was another mega yeah, brand. And, another and, mega brand, another mega story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there were so many others. So I, I want to understand when you have this exit in 1999. So what did that feel like? Was it just like a huge weight off your shoulders? And then you said, okay, I'm ready for the next chapter? Well, it was it was amazing because we we're still in growth mode. You know, I was going every week, I'd be going to these meetings with Ralph and, on a monthly basis and showing them, you know, we're going to open up a flagship in San Francisco and we want to do this in here and we want to do that there. So it was still, there was still a lot of work involved, but it started to get a bit restrictive and I wasn't used to that. And we know we couldn't move quite as freely as we had. And so I realized at that point that I, I had to move on. Right. And so you start, you start Mimran and Associates then, I assume? Yeah, 2001 is when I started Mimran and Associates. And I didn't really know what to do with myself. I thought, try doing nothing for a bit, uh, which didn't work out well. And tried a bunch of different things, consulted a little bit, you know, helped some, another apparel brand, helped them build their brand and sell their company, which I did. And then I ran into John Letter, who said to me, Hey, Joe, what are you doing now? I said, I'm, well, not really anything. He goes, well, would you like to design some home products for President's Choice? He said, can you do like 20 products? I said, 20, John, that's like really not a problem, right? <laughs> yeah, I can do that. I, I said, I can do that. He said, okay, great. He goes, I want you to come to the office. You'll meet with Galen, blah, blah, blah. You know, we did Is the it whole Galen thing. Weston? Yeah, Galen Weston. And and then Galen invited myself and Kim to the house, talk more about it. He loved Caban. He and Hillary loved Caban, loved what we did there. And so I was entrusted with this PC brand, which is a you know, multi-billion dollar brand, to bring this new category to life. 
And it was a nice challenge. At the same time, I was doing a few other things. 2004, I was invested in Canasat, which was the first can- public cannabis company at the time. And there was you know, a bunch of other things that I was doing. But essentially, that was kind of what turned into this big relationship where I really took on this home project with PC, which then became all of home. And I took on all of their home products and all of their brands. And then they gave me, then they asked me, can you create an apparel brand? And I said, well, yeah, I I think I can do that. And they really wanted it to compete with Walmart opening price point brand. And they would bring me samples. And I said, no, no, no. If I do it, I've got to have control over this thing. And, And this is how I want to do it. And then creating the name, the namesake. And the reason I I was okay with using my name, normally, you know, I was always sort of behind the curtain as opposed to in front of the curtain and was because it needed so much speed and credibility. And the problem with a lot of companies that try and do private brand is that it always gets mucked up, too many hands touch it. And then, you know, there's no credibility. And I said to them, when we advertise, I do not want it advertised as a house brand. This has got to right. be, a, we're going to, we're going to do all the marketing as if, you know, oh, and you can find it at, yeah. at Loblaws. And so we'll set up a studio downtown, 14,000 square foot studio to launch it downtown, right in the Liberty, Liberty Village area and did a, a huge launch to the press. And they were blown away by what we did and the opening price points that we hit. And at the time, there were other brands in the UK. There was like uh, Tesco had had a private label brand of apparel, and so did their other food chain, Sainsbury. And so clothing in a food store in Canada was certainly unusual. And I had friends who came to me and said, like, Joe, what are you doing? Like, you just sold right. to Ralph, you're selling in a food store. Like, are you kidding? I said, no, no, no. I think this could be really big. I think this could be really well, you big. You guys, I, I remember you had at one point a launch. It was the New York launch, I remember. And I remember reading about in the headlines that the store was just overwhelmed and you couldn't open them fast. You couldn't keep product on the shelves. It was really like a home run out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it was really quite amazing. But we again, we prepped it, right? Like we did all the right PR. We, you know, the product was amazing for the price. I I remember when some of the press, uh, Sandra Patana comes to mind when she looked at the product and she said, Joe, these prices are goofy. Like, how, how are you doing this? Right. And, you know, today fast fashion gets quite a knock, right? Because they always associate it with sweatshops. And in some cases that perhaps is that's right. I mean, you can think about you can think about it in those terms. But coming from a, a manufacturing background, I can tell you that the factories that we operated in were at least as good, if not better, than any of the factories on Spadina Avenue. I promise you that. Right? They're air conditioned. Yeah. You guys right? in air conditioning. <laughs> that's right. They've got like you know they've got a room like a first aid room. They've got a health room. You know they've got like proper demarcation between all the you know different lines and everything but you know we were able to bring a quality level to a price point that had not been seen here in Canada and that's really and a style level right there was a style yeah. sensibility which is really 
if I have one stock in trade, it would be that we can do these things. We can bring good taste, good style. We can make it more accessible, more democratic, and be passionate about it. You know, we're not here to just put out sausages to make money. I mean, we actually love what we do. We love the process of developing products. We love style and the idea of style, the idea of fashion, but not for it to be so frivolous, but, you know, enduring in in a way. And I've made everything from expensive clothing because we cut our teeth on, you know, I used to buy fabrics in Italy from the most expensive mills in the world, from Rati and places like that. So I've done every every category and I've done every price point. I can tell you there's as much integrity sometimes in trying to achieve something fantastic at an amazing price. There's got to be a passion in it, though. And hopefully that translates to when the consumer sees it. I often say inanimate objects that get designed with a purity can sometimes resonate with consumers. And I do this today, whether it's gray matter for staples that we have in Canada and the US, and we now we do a myriad of products. You know, we paint over the feel of the pen, the feel of the paper, the cover, the, the elastic, the chair, the ergonomics of the chair, the, you know, all of it, the materials that we use, the newness of the materials, like all that stuff is all, it's like, food you put passion into yeah. it and people can you can see it and taste it you can see it and so and if if there was a do. young joe mimran out there right now what i, what mm. I want to understand is obviously in the 70s and 80s it was a whole different world you didn't have phones you didn't have overseas yeah. you know, easy overseas manufacturing how would you build a business like this if you were starting today without the resources that you have yeah i mean Listen, I'm starting businesses all the time and I help entrepreneurs start businesses. Every bit is difficult today in one way, but it's also much easier today because in the old days, the border was a huge barrier. Today, you have no barriers. You have no barriers to borders. So you are borderless. What an amazing opportunity. And to me, marketing is far more sophisticated today than it's ever been. I'm going to tell you quite honestly, even though I was inducted into the American Marketing Hall of Fame, like I find marketing today more complicated than almost any other discipline in business because it has evolved so much and it evolves so much, right? Like just the recent changes in Facebook and what TikTok is doing and and how that's catapulting brands and this emergence of this new royalty of celebrities that are become royalty and they are spokespeople that can create billion dollar businesses literally overnight. I mean, it is phenomenal what is going on. And so I think if I were to start, I think having that marketing hat is as important as having the finance hat, even more important. I think financing today is way easier than it ever was. Capital is much more fluid than it ever was. And people are always willing to put money into great ideas, whereas that was not true 30 years ago. So I think if you've got that marketing piece nailed, and I know that Influicity has got that piece, I think that's a really important piece to have. And, and to have that knowledge is, is incredible. Well, I can tell you as someone who, who cuts their teeth in marketing myself, 
it changes so fast. And I think one of the problems that we see with marketers today, you know, working with big, big brands, but also emerging brands is they get distracted and they think that because something exists, they have to be there. And the reality is, if you have a channel, if you can find two or three marketing channels that work, then just do that. You know, yeah. you don't need to be on, on 17 social media platforms when all your traffic is coming from two. Yeah, so. no, it's true. It's true. And I just want to, you know, one little story, you know, when I was about six years ago, six or seven years ago, we were in Barbados for a quick trip and Galen Sr. and Hillary joined us. And we had the opportunity to have dinner with Oscar de la Renta at his home. And when he was there, it was him and his wife and Julio Iglesias and his wife. And it was a funny kind of 360, you know, from not taking the brand in 1978 to, you know, sort of culminating at that moment was kind of a funny kind of irony to all of it. But Wow. Two, two fashion yeah. designers and a Latin heartthrob are at dinner. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, well, and he sang. And he sang Unplugged for over an hour. He sang wow. Unplugged for over an hour at the dinner table. Right? <laughs> there was just... It was just the six of us, eight of us, sorry. It was really remarkable, right? There was a guitar player that was there on an acoustic guitar and and he was singing. It was, uh, and, and Oscar joined in and Oscar had just gotten out of the hospital. So, and they're best friends. They live beside each other and best friends. So he was just so excited. And he did turn to me and he said, you know, I never do this without getting paid. And that was kind of a funny story. That's awesome. Where can people see your products today? You're all over still. Yeah. Well, we bought a company, uh, Tilly Endurables, which is an amazing, amazing company, amazing history. We're refashioning it, reinventing it, doing lots of wonderful things, lots of great products. We're selling that Canada, US, UK, just opened up Australia and soon to open up parts of South America. So we're pretty excited about that. And we're going to be opening a store on Ossington in the next few weeks. Of course, uh, Grey Matter, which you can find at uh, your local staple stores and uh, also staples in the U.S. So we're, we're very excited about that brand. Rise Little Earthling, which is a baby toddler brand, which you can find at Toys R Us and online. And yeah, we are now doing work with uh, Hudson's Bay. We're doing their Hudson North line. And we're doing their stripes re, uh, reinvention, which will be coming out uh, shortly. So, lots of different projects on the go. Feed that brain, which is another brand that we're working on, and I do sit on the board of Simply Protein, which is a plant-based protein bar company. Mm -hmm. LXR, which is the vintage handbag business online and really growing and and performing well, and of course. I sit on the board of Riv Capital, formerly Canopy Rivers. Amazing. So, but uh, yeah. these days you've got air conditioning. That That's, uh, that's a big now. step up. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. <laughs> well, Joe, this was amazing. Thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks very much, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or a review on Apple and Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. 